For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross." Our Father, thank you for the possibility to stand strong in the Lord in the strength of his might because of the victory that your son achieved through the blood of his cross. Thank you that when he was raised from the dead, he made a spectacle over all of the powers of evil. And thank you that in your mercy, because someone was faithful to take their assignment to go into the world and to share the gospel that when we heard and believed, you transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. Help us, our Father, in this place, here in this 11 o'clock service, and wherever people may be live streaming, everyone who names the name of the Lord Jesus. Help us in this new week to be faithful, to care for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Help us not to miss the opportunities that are everywhere around us, Help us to encourage people to come and worship here with us. Give us open doors of opportunity to share a word of biblical encouragement and even to share the plan of salvation. We thank you that on the first day of each week, you've called your people to gather, that the Lord of the Sabbath has now, in honor of the resurrection, deemed for us to meet on this day. And so we ask as we gather here and we offer our prayers to you and worship that as we open your word, that we would have our minds renewed this morning, that we would see clearly in a day of great deception. Father, without your help, I cannot do anything. Thank you that you promised to help your men of God, and I ask for that this morning, that you would come and fill me and anoint me and use me and speak only as you are able. May the Spirit penetrate our hearts, and may he help those who have never found forgiveness today to be convicted of their sin, of Christ's great righteousness, and the judgment that they so desperately need to escape. Thank you that you saved us not just from the penalty of hell, but into a living relationship with yourself. And we bless you now in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Take God's word this morning. Would you in turn to the book of Revelation chapter 13? One of the truths that God's people in the American church, I believe, are deprived of concerns the knowledge of biblical prophecy as it relates to the future of the world. Because we have exited largely what we call expository preaching, the doctrine of eschatology, that is the doctrine of last things, the doctrine that deals with the future, has largely been neglected and ignored. But as God's people, if you name the name of Christ, you don't need to go to some psychic to find the future. You don't need some lady to look in her crystal ball to tell you what is going to happen. Everything we need to know is found right here in the Word of God. 
God said in Isaiah, the 46th chapter, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. God intended that we know what his purposes and his plans are for the future. And so as we study the prophets, whether it's the prophet Isaiah or the prophet, the apostle John, God is speaking through them to us. And God wants us to know the future, not so that we will be scared, but that we as his people might be prepared. And that's the principal reason we are unfolding the revelation together. Now, if you've been with us, you remember when we came to chapters 12 and 13, we turned a corner and the narrative dramatically changes. We're in the second half of the Great Tribulation. And in this section of the Revelation, God has been introducing us to seven key players, seven personages of sorts, so that we can understand the rest of the book. And right now, we're concerning ourselves with three in particular, the dragon, who's identified as the devil, the serpent of old. Secondly, the beast, who we often call simply the Antichrist, and then his false prophet. And these three form an evil trinity of sorts. Satan assumes the role of God the Father. The Antichrist assumes the role of God the Son. And the false prophet assumes the role of the Spirit. It's a satanic trio. And we will see that when they start, it appears like they are prospering, but the Lord Jesus will bring their rule to an end. Now, the events that we're studying will be of great concern for those who are actually living during this time frame in human history. But remember, this book was written nearly 2,000 years ago. The book of the Revelation was penned in 95 A.D., And so most of those who have benefited have actually already died and gone to heaven, those that knew Christ. But those who are alive during the events that are described will especially be pouring over this Scripture. But we should too, because all Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man, the woman of God might be adequately prepared for every good work. This is God-breathed material and it's profitable for you today. And Satan, of course, has always been the great enemy of God's people, whether they be Old Testament saints, uh, church saints, or even those future tribulation saints. And so we studied in chapter 12 how Satan fights against God and his people, and that he often uh, uses people in order to achieve his means. But God gives victory through his son. Uh, Sometimes he uses a person like a Caesar or a Hitler or a Stalin, but there's coming a man that he is going to use in a profound way like he's used no one else in all of time. And just cutting to the chase, we typically call him the Antichrist. There are over 30 titles that are given to him in both the Old and the New Testament. But we spent three Sundays examining just verses 1 through 10 as we studied this man of sin, this son of perdition. And it's helpful to know how he functions because he is functioning with Satan's power. And so when you understand your enemy, you are better equipped to fight your enemy. And Satan, of course, is a great imitator. He loves to duplicate that which God has done. Jesus is the real Christ. The Antichrist is the fake Christ. 
If you remember in the opening verses of the Gospel of John, the same one who gave us the book of Revelation, we're told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he will write, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Which, in these two verses alone, we are encouraged and told that Jesus Christ is the living, breathing revelation of the Father. Which is why he then says in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. We noted last time that the word explained is the Greek word that gives us our word exegesis. And a pastor is to preach the word, not his word, but God's word, and he is to exegete the text. He is not to be guilty of eisegesis, and neither should you be. You're not to read into the Bible something that God has not expressly said. You are to read out of Scripture. And there's a lot of preaching today where a text of Scripture is used, where the point that is made has absolutely nothing to do with the text. Pastors who are guilty of eisegesis in order to make some psychological point or something else that they're trying to teach. Now, Jesus, in every sense, has exegeted the Father. He has explained him, which is why he can say to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. It's why Paul tells the Colossians, as we read in the pastoral prayer, he is the image of the invisible God. It's why the writer to the Hebrews can affirm that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Well, in some respects, the same principle could be applied to the Antichrist. Now, while the incarnation is a totally unique event, it's about as close as you can become. While Satan is not in the flesh in the Antichrist, he is nonetheless empowering this coming man of sin. And he is going to try to duplicate the relationship between God the Father and God the Son through himself, the dragon, and his coming Antichrist. Now, with that said, we're only going to go as far, and like the bulletin, we're going to go only as far as verse 15 today. You need to come back next week because next week is absolutely critical to your understanding the future and the rest of the Revelation. Revelation 13, let's read verses 11 to 15. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform and the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and had come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, let me bring you into the context of our passage. Again, in the 12th chapter, the narration drastically changes. And God, once again, is giving us a behind-the-scenes view of what is happening during this time in human history. 
And again, as this chart reminds us, there are seven critical people that God underscores in these two chapters. We first looked at the woman who's identified as the nation of Israel. Then we saw the dragon who's specifically called the devil in the text, the male child that can only refer to Christ, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, Michael, who's deemed the archangel, the rest of her children, that is, those who flee into the wilderness, saved Israel, the beast out of the sea, who we typically call the Antichrist, and then today, the one that we're going to concern ourselves with, the beast out of the earth, also deemed in the Scripture as the false prophet. Seven different personages that are, even, that are introduced, introduced to us either directly, like Michael, just the archangel, no symbol there, or it's given to us symbolically. And so we saw in the opening verse of the Scripture, in Revelation 1 and verse 1, if you will bring up that slide, the Revelation, not Revelations, there's no such book. Don't call it the book of Revelations. There's no such book in the Bible. The Revelation singular of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So the father gave this revelation to the son in the sense, not that he was learning anything new, because he too is omniscient, but he's given this revelation as that he is the one who is going to exercise it and unfold it. So he gave this revelation to show his servants, that's us, those of you who are born again, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it. The first four words of the word signified is sign. He signified it, and that's the marginal reading in the New American Standard. In the body of the text, it says communicated. And the word communicated is a Greek word that means to give, um, give uh, a symbol in a figurative way. It refers to giving information in a figurative way of sorts. And so people often ask me, well, do you interpret the Bible literally or symbolically? And the answer is yes. In other words, when there is a symbol that is in view, you are to find out what the symbol means, what it represents, but then you literally believe it. And so when Satan is called the dragon, he's not a literal dragon, but the symbol of the dragon, because of his ferocious nature, he is identified in Revelation 12, 9 as the devil. And so do I believe in a literal devil? You better believe I do. So John was given a message that was signified and critical to understanding the revelation is to keep reading because most of the signs are interpreted within the revelation or in the Old Testament. Daniel is critical to understanding the revelation because it gives us, especially in the ninth chapter, the schematic for the whole book. But the Old Testament, over 300 allusions to the Old Testament and the 404 verses are woven all the way through this. And so in the opening verse, we, for instance, spoke about this sea, and that is a symbol of sorts. And the word sea or water in the Bible can be used literally of a real actual sea, 
or figuratively, or sometimes, as John will do, as both in a given context. We do that in English today. We speak about that sea of people to describe a mass crowd. And so Daniel and Isaiah and the Revelation use the term both literally and figuratively. And so we are told in the opening verse of this chapter that there is coming a man out of the sea, so to speak, and it's a symbol that we analyze that is used to describe the Gentile nations of the world. Of course, uh, we learn in God's Word that we are in a time frame known as the time of the Gentiles. The time's actually plural because it refers to successive kingdoms. The times of the Gentiles refers to that time that began with Nebuchadnezzar and up until the second coming by which Israel is under oppression. And so John highlighted four particular kingdoms, especially as they relate to Israel. There have certainly been other kingdoms, though the ones he highlights ever before they come into existence especially relate to the Jewish people. And of course, the final kingdom that he highlights is the Roman kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, that will eventually um, come back at the end of time, he says, in ten parts. Ten nations, ten kings. Rome has never existed in ten parts when they were an international empire. But they will indeed in the future. And so there is this beast coming out of the sea. And ever since the times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar, even until this day, the Jews have been oppressed. You say, but they're an independent nation. Yes, they are, but an oppressed nation. Half of all the decrees made by the United Nations last year were made against the people of Israel. And even as an independent people, the nations of this world are against them. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. And so we asked and answered the question, if the Antichrist comes out of the sea of the Gentile nations, do we know what section of the world he comes out of? Yes, because it's articular. He doesn't come out of a sea, but you will notice he comes out of the sea. And we pointed out that this could not be the Galilean Sea or the Red Sea or the Dead Sea, but the Great Sea, what today we call the Mediterranean Empire. And that's further justified by what he says in verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. He says it was like a bear, like a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And so he uses the identical imagery of Daniel 7 to describe the Roman Empire that's going to be revived at the end of time. And so here's a map of the Roman Empire as it existed in John's day, a map as it existed in John's day, a map. There we go. I knew I'd get it. I need one of those clickers. And so don't look at your uh, phone up there and check out your email. Pay attention now, okay? I don't know that he's doing that. Sometimes the button gets stuck. It really does. So here's a picture of the Roman Empire. The sea, of course, here is primarily the Great Sea, what we call the Mediterranean Sea along with the Aegean Sea. In either case, it's in this realm of the world that the coming Antichrist is going to arise from. And so you say, well, if he's going to come out of the revived Roman Empire, does that mean that he will be a Gentile? And I said to you last time, absolutely not. And I gave you four reasons why the coming Antichrist cannot be a Gentile, but can only be a Jew. 
The principal reason is that which Jesus made in John chapter 5. He said to his Jewish compatriots, the leadership of the nation, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. The Jewish people, for the most part, rejected Yeshua. He came to his own, his own received him not. And he said, because you rejected me, you're going to receive another who will come in his name. Another, two words, heteros and elos. If I ask you for a heteros biblios, you could give me another book, a book on science, geography, sports, anything you wanted. But if I ask you for an alos biblios, you'd have to give me another book like this. You'd have to give me a Bible. That's the word that Jesus uses. There's another one coming just like me. In what respect? In that he will be a Jew. I was speaking to one of my rabbi friends uh, yesterday in Israel, in Jerusalem, and I said to him, Hanok, uh, has there ever been Jewish people who thought for a moment that the coming Messiah could be a Gentile. He said, never. No Jew thinks that way. Never has, never will. Because the prophets wrote that he would come from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. I said, I just wanted to make sure. I said, that's my sense, though I read one article where some guy thought that uh, the coming Messiah could be a Gentile. No Jew thinks that way because it doesn't fulfill the qualifications. There's a reason this coming man of sin is called anti-Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the word Christ. The Jews believe their Messiah, of course, is yet to come. They're going to realize it's Yeshua. They'll look on him whom they have pierced, Zechariah the prophet says. They're going to realize in this time frame called the tribulation that Jesus is the one who indeed they should have embraced, but they will embrace him. But there's a reason he's called the Antichrist. He comes in the place of Christ. Now, verse 1 says he comes out of the sea of the Gentile nations. Verse 2 narrows it to the former Roman Empire. But we read in a prior chapter, in the 11th chapter, that the Antichrist comes out of the abyss. So one gives us the geographical location from which he comes. The other gives us the satanic empowerment that he receives. He comes out of the abyss and that his power comes from hell. He'll come in the place of Jesus. He will be like an angel of light, for that's what the devil often does. Now, I hope you know by now that Satan absolutely hates the Jewish people. There's never been a people in the history of humanity that has been more persecuted than the Jewish people. Let me give you five reasons. I haven't given you these yet. Five reasons why Satan absolutely hates the Jews. Number one, Satan, who's the prince of the power of the air, who's energizing the world system, he hates the Jews because they are God's chosen people. Moses reminds the Jewish people that God chose you, not because you were greater in number or better than other folks, but because God set his love upon you. God had to choose a people in which to carry out his plan, and those chosen people are the Jews. Secondly, Satan hates the Jewish people because they gave us the scriptures. 
Every book in the Bible is written by a Jew. Some would say, well, Luke, who gave us the gospel, Luke and Acts, was a Gentile. I don't think so. Like many Jewish people who had Greek names in the first century, he was a Jew. Every book of the Bible, Paul affirms, was given to us by the Jewish people. Third, he hates the Jews because God gave, through the Jewish people, the Messiah, through Abraham, All the nations, all the peoples, every tongue, tribe, and language would be blessed because Jesus would die for all the nations of the world. And fourth, he hates the Jews because of what they are going to accomplish in the end of time. 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to preach the gospel to the world, and there's going to be more people saved in that revival than in any other time in human history. And Satan hates the salvation of the soul. Satan, if you're listening to me today and you are lost, he hates you, he wants to deceive you, and he wants to take you to that place where he is going to spend an eternity. Now, that's the backdrop, and we're going to see how Satan uses this antichrist and this false prophet together in order to express his hatred against the Jewish people, but also to deceive the world. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to consider with me this second beast, and I want us to first ponder the personality of the beast. In fact, two truths about his personality are packed into verse 1. The first concerns the disguise that he displays, the disguise that he displays. We're told here in verse 1, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Now, according to verse 1, the first beast came up out of the sea. But according to this verse, the second beast comes up out of the earth. And he is called here another beast. And again, it's the word alos. He's another in that he is of like kind as the first beast. He is a real human being, such that when we come to Revelation chapter 19, at the end of time, we'll read, and the beast, there the false prophet, was seized. Excuse me, and the beast there, the Antichrist, was seized, and with him, the false prophet, the second beast, three times in the Revelation, is called the false prophet. So the beast, the Antichrist, was seized, with him, the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast. We'll study that next week. You do not want to miss next week's sermon when we explore the mark of the beast. It's going to be critical to your understanding the future events described in the Revelation, who would receive the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. They both suffer the fate of all lost men where they are thrown into the lake of fire. And I emphasize this because I told you in the introductory sermon to the Revelation that there are Christians in the Reformed camp who say that the whole book of Revelation, with the exception of the second coming, was all fulfilled before 70 AD. That is basically a history book. Well, to make it a history book, you have to spiritualize virtually everything about it. But there's a theology they have that drives that. It's called replacement theology. Because they believe that God is done with the Jew and has been done with them since 70 AD. It's all history. It's called the preterist view, praetor, Latin for the past view. It's all in the past. 
or they got problems with the verse like we will read here in Revelation 19.20. And they, uh, of course, spiritualize the second beast, and they say, well, he's a kingdom. And uh, he is uh, a kingdom force. And, uh, and we've already noted that even with the first beast, that the term the beast can refer to a literal person, or it can refer to the kingdom that that literal person represents. Well, the problem in their theology is kingdoms are not thrown into the lake of fire. People are. You just have to butcher the Word of God in so many ways. These are real human beings, beast number one, beast number two. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns. The beast coming up out of the sea, if you remember, had ten horns, whereas this second beast comes up out of the earth, and he has just two horns. And the first beast, of course, is more powerful in that he has ten, not to mention the imagery that is used in any first century Jewish person's mind. The beasts that were in the sea were far more ferocious than any of the land beasts, and some of those sea beasts, sea dinosaurs we call them today, were still very much alive in John's day. But lay that aside, we're going to see that this person, as the 17th and 18th chapters will unfold, is going to play second fiddle to the first beast. He is going to be his compatriot. This will be the devil's duo. They will work together, but he will give preeminence to the Antichrist. He is called the false prophet. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb. Now, the first beast comes, and his kingdom is a political kingdom. But this man, the second beast, is called the false prophet because he's going to provide the glue that is going to hang that political kingdom together, and namely religion. And he is described here like a lamb. Now, remember, Jesus described false religious teachers who come dressed as harmless sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. I mean, who's afraid of a little lamb? No one is. They don't scare people. They're gentle. They're harmless. They're innocent. Well, just understand that this false prophet is going to display himself as a lamb. Why? Because he is a phony, he is a fake, but he is not harmless. Uh, Jesus said, don't be fooled by those who come in sheep's clothing. They may have the camouflage of a lamb, but they are representing a different kingdom. So beyond the disguise he displays, think with me for a moment about the deception that he declares. There's a deception that he speaks, that he declares. We read now in verse 1, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Like the Antichrist, he's a great imitator, a great deceiver, and that he looks like a lamb. He has horns, but he has the voice of a dragon. He has the character of a lamb, but he has the voice of a dragon. He has dragon breath, in essence. When he speaks, he speaks hell's message. Jesus told us, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus warned us of these men who appear to be really nice guys, 
But spiritually speaking, they are going to help damn your soul if you pay attention to them. Jesus warned that at the end of time, especially during this final seven-year period, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. He also said in the same sermon in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, even believers. People during this time frame are going to be so desperate for answers because the world will be in utter turmoil. The false prophet and all his compatriots that work under him are going to have an opportunity like they have never, ever had. But please understand, this is not any normal false prophet. It's articular, the three times the beast is called the false prophet. He is the false prophet of all false prophets. And don't miss that he's called a prophet because his emphasis is not political, it's spiritual. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. This links the false prophet by his language to Satan's kingdom. Because if you remember in Revelation 12 and verse 9, the dragon is identified as the devil. You may be thinking, well, how does the devil speak when he speaks? Well, I don't have to wonder. Jesus told me in John 8, that Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature. Why? For he is a liar and the father of lies. And so this false prophet is partnered with Satan himself. The second beast is, it will work like no fifth column has ever worked behind the scenes. He is going to point men directly to this false messiah. He is going to appear harmless. He is going to, though, offer solutions, religious in nature, that is going to pull it all together. His message is from the pit of hell. He is a minister of propaganda of sorts, and he will convince the world that they should follow the Antichrist. He is so deceptive, so evil, he is representing Satan himself. Now, please understand that what God is unfolding for us in this chapter is just a, a snapshot of this unholy trinity that is yet to come. Again, Satan takes the place of God the Father. Remember, it is fall. He said it is recorded in Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High. That's what his heart's desire was, to be like God and to be worshipped. And of course, he will use his counterfeit Christ in order to achieve that. Men, we will read before we're done this morning, will worship the dragon. They will worship this counterfeit father through the Antichrist who is pointed to from the false prophet. And so the first beast is a counterfeit Christ, and this second beast is a counterfeit Holy Spirit. Look, if you go into some church today, and the Holy Spirit is the figurehead, and He's the center of it all, you're in a bogus movement that has misrepresented how God works, because the Holy Spirit didn't come to bring attention to Himself. He came to glorify Jesus. Jesus said this of Him, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify not himself, but he shall glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. Well, just as Satan seeks to counterfeit the Father and the Antichrist seeks to attempt to counterfeit the Son, the false prophet will seek to counterfeit the Spirit. He will point men to the Antichrist. I drew a chart out this week to contrast the two, the Holy Spirit versus the false prophet, because they are not to be confused. The Holy Spirit exalts Christ. But in like vein, the false prophet exalts the Antichrist. The Holy Spirit gives divine revelation, words from heaven. The false prophet speaks words from hell. He gives satanic revelation. The Holy Spirit enlightens men with truth. The false prophet deceives people with error. The Holy Spirit builds the body of Christ. The false prophet builds the body of the Antichrist. God's people have the mark of Christ given to us by the Holy Spirit. He's our earnest. He's our down payment. He's our guarantee. We're sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Likewise, as we will see next time, the Antichrist has his mark that the false prophet will encourage people to take. The 666, Christ secures us for heaven. How long are we deposited with the Spirit? In Christ, you, having heard the message of truth, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. How long? Ephesians 4.30, you are sealed for the day of redemption. Look, when a man, when a woman takes the 666 on their hand or their forehead, they will be sealed for all of eternity to be the devil's own. There will be no reversing that any more than you can reverse your salvation once you are saved. Remember, just as Paul told the Corinthians, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves, his pastors, his preachers, as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Satan is the master imitator, and at this time in history, he will have his evil duo, the son of perdition and the false prophet working together. Now, that's the personality of the second beast. Let's also think about this morning the power of the second beast. We need to consider the power of this second beast first as it relates to the source of his power, the source of his power. We're told specifically here in verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Now, if you look back at the end of verse 2, we were told, and the dragon gave him, the Antichrist, the first beast, his power and his throne and his great authority. We're told that the Antichrist will rule the world not by his power, but by Satan's power. He's Satan's Superman. He is energized by this dark prince, and the Bible tells us that Satan gives him three advantages. He gives him his power, which refers, in essence, to his strength, his ability to operate. He gives him his throne, that refers to his ability to rule over all the nations of the world. And third, he gives him great mega exousia, authority. Authority, it's the word that describes the ability to do as one pleases. 
and the Antichrist will do as he pleases on this earth, but for a short time until Christ intervenes. Listen, the most powerful fallen angel in all of creative history is Satan, and he is going to empower not just this first beast, but this second beast. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Very simply, he has the same source of power as the Antichrist does, and the world will accept this man. They will accept him as a man of God. He will be hailed around the world as someone who needs to be listened to. Satan is the source of his power, but also let's think for a moment about the scope of his power, the scope of this man's power. Furthermore, in verse 12, we read, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. The Bible is clear that this second beast, who's called the false prophet, is so convaling that he makes the whole earth to follow after the first beast. And he is going to do this through a worldwide religion. Listen, religion is the glue that unites people. People are often divided politically over issues. Nations are divided politically. And even within a nation, we have our own political parties, and, and they often are in total disagreement, and for good reason often. Occasionally, they'll get together and they'll, they'll vote on a similar issue, but they can't seem to get along. And the nations of the world very often have trouble getting along. But there is going to be a glue that will unite them. We'll study it in Revelation 17 and 18, and it's called religion. I mean, think about it for just a moment. Just think about the Middle East. The problems in the Middle East are really not political. They are spiritual in nature. I mean, that's the heart of all their problems. Now, this little place called Israel, the size of New Jersey, Delaware, there's only 12 million Jews on the whole planet, and yet they are the center and focus of the daily news for a reason, because God is going to culminate human history through the Jewish people. God's not done with the Jewish people. They are his chosen people designed to bring about the first coming, but also they will be used of God to bring about the second coming. But think about the 200 million people that surround that little piece of land. They hate them. They're called Muslims. They want to destroy the Jews and drive them into the water. The, the last chief rabbi in Israel said this. He said, my dream is to create a united religious nations. Just as there is the United Nations in New York, the diplomats did not succeed in bringing peace to the world. They need help. And this can come through religious language. Because a Muslim does not respect a person who is secular, he will only have respect if you are religious. The religious United Nations would also include Hindus and Buddhists. We religious people speak the same language. Well, what this rabbi wants to accomplish, what he dreams about, the false prophet will accomplish, he will achieve. Most of you know that the Muslims despise and hate the Jewish people, and again, they are bent on the destruction of Israel. But during this time, there is going to be peace, and it's going to be a religious glue. Now, lay aside for just a moment the supernatural deception that is coming through uh, this second beast. Listen to what John wrote in his first epistle. Children, 
It is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, that is the, the one world leader that we've been studying, even now, many, many Antichrists, those who are against the Lord Jesus, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, if you know your Bible, then you know the phrase, the last hour and the last days, refer to that time frame that began on the day of Pentecost, when the miracle happened at Pentecost of people being able to speak real, known, identifiable languages. Peter said, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. So we've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Jesus Christ, that the Lord Jesus could come at any moment. But the second coming is a prophecy-driven event. And there are many prophecies that must be fulfilled, not for the rapture, but for the second coming that comes seven-plus years after the rapture. John will later write in his first epistle, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now already is in the world. Key question that we want our friends to ask and answer is, who is Jesus? Is he just a prophet, as the Muslims say? Or is he more than a prophet, as the Bible says? Is he indeed God in human flesh? The Bible does not leave open the option to say he's just another religious teacher, just a, a good moral man. In light of the claims he made about himself, he's either a deceiver, he is either deceived, or his deity, or he is deity, you must choose. And so the Bible says that every true Christian claims that Jesus is God come in human flesh. Now, if you know 1 John, it's more than just saying, well, I believe Jesus is God incarnate, but he is saying that if you truly believe that in your heart, then your life will change because what you believe always influences how you behave. And so John over and over will write in 1 John, these things I've written to you. 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 Fifth time. These things I've written to you that you who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you may know that you have eternal life. He is reminding us that if you truly believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, your life has changed. For instance, by this we know we've passed out of death in the life. We love the brethren. If you're listening to me today, you don't love born-again Christians. You're either out of fellowship with God, and so you're not in a local church, and you don't care to be in a local church, or you're just lost. You see, a mark that you're a member of the family is you love the family. And so John will say, if these things are true of you, then you can know, not just hope or wonder, but know that you right now have this second, indeed, what we call eternal life. The Spirit will bear witness with your human spirit, Paul says, that you've had a birth from above. But with that said, again, it's not just saying Jesus is Lord, uh, making some doctrinal statement. You see demons in the Scripture making similar statements. In the opening chapter in Mark's Gospel, in the 24th verse, a demon will affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. The demons believe in, quote-unquote, tremble. 
But what God wants you to understand is that a man who doesn't confess that Jesus is God in the flesh, he's of the Antichrist. He's following the spirit of the Antichrist. And the coming Antichrist will definitively deny that Jesus is Lord. And all those who follow him will deny that Jesus is Lord. They will reject the preaching of the 144,000, and they will listen to this false prophet. So while the spirit of Antichrist has always been at work, and that we've been in the last hour of the last days since Pentecost, I believe we're in the last of the last days. I believe we're in the final minutes of the last hour, because we are seeing in our day prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, which reminds you that the rapture is that much closer. In Revelation 13 and verse 12, this second beast comes, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. I want to tell you that the seeds for this coming event are being sold in our day, sown in our day. We've always had apostasy, but there is coming an articular apostasy, the apostasy the Bible speaks of. Listen to what Pope Francis said last year. Most people in the world identify to be believers. By the way, he said it at this conference. Here's a picture with all these religious leaders of different faiths. This should lead us, he says, to dialogue among the world's religions. We should not stop praying for it in collaborating with those who think differently. Many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. But there is certainly, but there is one certainly that we have all, (laughs) but there is one certainty that we have for all, and that is that we're all children of God. Now, we'll explore this further as we get to Revelation 17 and the one world religion of the coming Antichrist is led through his false prophet. But please understand, on 12 different occasions since this pope has taken office, he has been pushing and promoting a one world religion. And you cannot say what he said is true. This is a lie that people can seek God in different ways. No, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. And if you read your Bible accurately, unlike what the Pope said on this occasion, we are not all children of God, but as many as receive Yeshua, Jesus, to them he has given the right, the authority, the power to become children of God. Listen, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. And that spirit, though, is going to be manifested in a way through the false prophet who is coming like we've never seen before. But I want to tell you, the stage is being set for it. Well, part of the reason the world is going to follow this Antichrist is given in verse 12. Look at it. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Now, we learned last time in verses 3 and 4 that the Antichrist is going to be wounded. It's a fatal wound. He's going to literally die, but he's going to be raised from the dead. And when this happens, the world will be stupefied in wonder and in worship, and this false prophet will point men to the son of perdition, the man of sin, the Antichrist, and men and women and boys and girls will worship him. 
The text says he exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence. Notice the phrase in verse 12, in his presence. These two men are the devil's duo. They work together. They will work hand in hand to accomplish the devil's purpose at this time. That brings me to my third point. Beyond the personality of the beast and the power of the second beast, I want us to ponder the performance of the second beast. I want us to think how he performs, and specifically first, the miracles that he will accomplish. The role of the false prophet is to make this false religion believable and palatable. And one tool the Bible reveals that he will use to accomplish this are false miracles. His miracles from heaven, so to speak, are nothing more than miracles from hell. Look at verse 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of man. Now, please understand that the miracles he performs are not sleight of hand, hocus pocus, fake miracles. They are real miracles, and they are so convincing that the most skeptical people will embrace what he does. Now, remember what Jesus said in the Mount of Olivet. We already read about false prophets who will come and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Paul used similar language of this coming Antichrist, that his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. And one of these false miracles is fire that comes out of heaven. Now, do you remember Revelation 11? We studied the two witnesses. At the end of time, two men are coming. People debate who these two men are. Most think, myself included, that it's Elijah and Moses because of the kind of ministry they have. In either case, we know for a fact that Elijah is coming Again, Malachi chapter 4 teaches that, as well as Jesus said before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah is going to come back. And one of the things that Elijah did is he was used of God to literally bring fire down of heaven. And these two witnesses, that's one of the things they do. They bring fire down out of heaven. So the devil's man comes along and says, I can do what they do. Why? Because he wants you to believe that he is the real thing, and he will bring fire out of heaven. Now, do you remember the Jewish people were always asking Jesus, not just for a miracle, not just for a sign, but a sign from heaven. The people's eyes that were blind whom he healed, the deaf eyes that he unplugged, the dead people he raised up, the, 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 the lame limbs that he allowed to walk. That wasn't good enough for them, though those were all prophetic miracles that God said Messiah would do by his prophet Isaiah. They wanted something dramatic out of heaven. Well, this man is going to do that. He is going to bring fire out of heaven. He performs great signs, and so fire comes out of heaven. That's the miracles that he will accomplish. Think also about the outcome he is going to elicit. There's an outcome he's going to elicit. We read now in verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs. Remember, that's the word that John loves to use for miracles, He uses not the word dunamis that speaks of the power of a miracle. We get our word dynamite or 
uh, Tehran that speaks of the wonder or the awe that a miracle produces. He uses the word samion. It's a specific Greek word that speaks of a miracle with a message. And so he chooses seven miracles in his gospel to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Well, the Antichrist, through his false prophet, are going to produce miracles with a message. He will deceive all who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast. So people are going to make these little statues. They'll put them in their home, on their car dashboards, all across the planet. They'll make images of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. By the way, this is the third time God mentions the miraculous healing of the Antichrist. Now, he mentioned it first in verse 3, his fatal wound was healed. Then in verse 12, I have it underlined, whose fatal wound was healed. No if statement there. And now in verse 14, he speaks of a wound with the sword. And yes, he came back to life three times, he underscores, because he is emphasizing the power of this particular miracle. So let me review it for a second, because God brings it up three times, so I'm going to bring it up again. Not to mention, I think I created some questions last week. I thought I was clear on this, but you know what they say? If there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pews. I just don't think some of you are listening, but pay attention now, okay? I'll blame it on you, not me. Look at verse 3 again. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, the Antichrist. So if the Antichrist is indeed dead, as the simple reading of the three verses in this chapter indicate... How is it, if God alone can resurrect the dead, that the Antichrist is resurrected? Well, some say that the Antichrist is really not resurrected, but what is resurrected here is his kingdom. And of course, we've already noted that the word beast can refer to the literal beast, the literal Antichrist, or the kingdom he represents. And we do that in English. And so I illustrated Hitler bombed England, not literally on an airplane where he dropped the bombs, but Germany, for whom Hitler represented, bombed England. Well, at least I can appreciate that because they don't want to contradict the Word of God and say that since only God can perform a resurrection, that indeed the Antichrist performed it, so they say his kingdom was revived. And of course, the verse they appeal to is John 5, 21. Jesus said, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he pleases. And we noted last time in John 5 that this whole chapter, or most of it, is a defense for his deity. And one of his arguments is, men will know that I am God because I can do only what God does. Nonetheless, I don't think this is a kingdom for two reasons I noted already. The possessive pronoun his that is used, and then the relative pronoun whose in verse 12. And that refers, I think, not in this case to a kingdom, but to a person. So how do we reconcile that this man came back to life? Well, if you don't embrace that his kingdom is being resurrected, you have two choices. Either this was a fake miracle... Or this was a real, genuine miracle. Well, let me first say, of course, any miracle that Satan does is a fake miracle in the sense that it doesn't originate from 
Satan, uh, from God, but it originates from Satan. So in that sense, even supernatural acts of power done by Satan in that sense are fakes. And Jesus said, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to mislead. But understand that when the case is made that this is a fake miracle, the case that is not, that is being made is that it didn't happen at all. Not that there was some source of evil power, but he fooled the world and he made people think that he was really dead, but he wasn't dead. And of course, they use the if statement of verse three. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. Argument, it was not really slain. It was as if it had been slain. Well, that's not the intent of the Greek, because this is what we call a first-class conditional statement. If you are the Son of God, not questioning that he was, since you are the Son of God, turn these rocks into bread. And even if you don't know Greek, you could figure it out from English, because he has already said in chapter 5 and verse 6, I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Same exact terminology. Was Jesus dead? Yes. He had all the marks of death, but he was also raised. This man will bear all the marks of real death. It will say his fatal wound, it's a fatal wound, was healed. There's an assassination attempt. And so verse 4 tells us they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? It's this miracle of the Antichrist coming back to life that is going to convince the world that he is God. This is Satan's finest hour where the world worships him through his fake Christ. Now, I told you last time, God certainly could have performed a miracle. He could have, I suppose, raised the Antichrist from the dead. God could have done it. And then some would say, well, there it is. There's God doing the miracle and not Satan. And so they would say that's consistent and only God can raise people from the dead. But I don't think that's what's in view here. Because what is elicited from all, elicited from all of this is idolatry. And I don't think God wanted to promote idolatry. No, I think this man was raised from the dead. It's not a fake miracle, but God used Satan to do it. He allowed Satan to do it. Remember, Luther had it right when he said, the devil is God's devil. We studied that last week in Job chapter 1, how the devil was given power to bring a tornado on Job's home to wipe out his house and all his children. The devil was given power to put boils all over Job's body. The fake magicians there in Egypt were given power by the evil one to turn water into blood and their staffs into serpents. And of course, we see unbelievers just before they are banished into the lake of fire who are also credited with doing miracles. Do you remember that? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, many will say to me on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons in your name perform many miracles? Yes, they did. It's a rhetorical statement. They did that. We'd say today, that is a spirit-filled ministry. They preached in his name. They cast out demons in his name. They did, men of God, men and women of God, they thought God was doing miracles to them. But it was the devil, Jesus will say, 
I never knew you. Not I once knew you. I never, ever, ever had a relationship with you because that's what eternal life is, that they might know you, the only true God, in Christ whom you have sent. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, please understand, whatever position faithful expositors take, no one can deny that even an unbeliever can perform a miracle and that Satan can empower them and deceive people through them. However, when Satan raises the Antichrist from the dead, this is a very different kind of miracle, and it in no way mitigates against the truth of John chapter 5. Now, if you were with me in the opening sermon in the Revelation, we studied eight people who were raised from the dead. Elijah raised someone from the dead. Elisha raised someone from the dead. There are three in the Old Testament. There are five in the New Testament. Jesus raised someone from the dead. Peter raised someone from the dead. Paul raised someone from the dead. Does that mean that Elijah and Elisha or Peter or Paul were doing something that only God can do? Certainly not. Because when they did those raising from the dead, it's very different from the ultimate kind that only God can do. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but not resurrected from the dead. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, that he is the firstborn from the dead. The Antichrist will have a raising from the dead, but not a resurrected for resurrection from the dead. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to do. And hours coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, some will come to a resurrection of life to walk on streets of gold in a new resurrected body, and others will come to a resurrection of death to live in the flames of hell. But Jesus is the first ever to come out in a forever body. But this man is supernaturally healed. His fatal wound was healed. He's really, really dead. And Satan does a miracle whacking at the very foundations of true biblical faith that most people will be totally ignorant of, and they will follow after this man. Listen, verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs that were given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had his womb. They've got their little shrines and their houses everywhere, verse 15. And it was given to him, this false prophet, to give breath to the same image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as would not worship the beast to be killed. Now, the rest of the Bible tells us that this specific event where this statue is erected, where this piece of stone or whatever it's made out of will literally speak, will be in a rebuilt second temple. Some of you were with me in Israel a few months ago and we went to the Temple Institute. And we learned how deeply committed the Jewish people are. 35% of all the Jews in Israel are religious in nature. They're committed Jews of one sort or to one degree of another. But the Jewish people are deeply committed to the rebuilding of the temple. All of the architectural plans are done. We saw them all spread out in a casing. All the furniture has been reproduced. All the temple garbs, garments have been manufactured. They're even training men whom they believe to be Levi's, whom God will definitively identify when he 
raises up the 144,000, but uh, to, to perform the sacrifices. And there we were on Independence Day, May the 14th, celebrating the 70th anniversary of Israel. And we saw this video. Of the, I took this video, or Steve took it. I took one, but his was better. So I'm using yours this morning, Steve. But uh, uh, here's the video. Play it for me, would you? Run it. I don't know. Here we go. All through the streets that day, men sharing and chanting that very phrase, we want him to rebuild the temple, into there we will ascend. We want him to rebuild the temple, into there we will ascend. The Bible is clear. There's coming a third temple. It has to be completed by the midpoint of the tribulation because it's in the middle that the abomination of desolation will take place. Paul says the Antichrist will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his place in the seat of the temple, displaying himself to be God. And when this happens, there's going to be an event associated with it that's going to open wide the eyes of the Jews. It's given in verse 15. And it was given to him, the false prophet, to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. When that happens, and he argues for everyone to have their own little image in their home, the Jews are going to know this man cannot be God's man. Why? Because he's going to be breaking the fourth commandment, or the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above and on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. They're going to realize that what is happening here is sheer idolatry and that this antichrist is a fake Christ. And we're going to see that they're going to believe that Yeshua is Lord, they will look on him whom they have pierced in genuine remorse in faith. But listen, there's coming the crowning act of this false prophet that Satan is going to use. And in that rebuilt temple, the Antichrist will come in. He'll declare himself to be God and there'll be a miracle that will accompany it where a stone or whatever kind of object it is will literally live and breathe. And people will worship the dragon through the beast as the false prophet points men to him. Now, what does all this mean for us today? Let me make some simple applications before we leave. And let me ask these, questions, these applications in the form of a question. Number one, how can you tell if a spiritual leader is from God or from Satan? I mean, how can you tell if a spiritual leader is from God or from Satan? I mean, there are people who come, they, 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 they come with the gentleness of a lamb. They're mild, they're meek, they're like a Joel Stein. They're, they're just, that's the way they come. And there are many who are deceived by that man. I'm going to analyze this theology for you on a Sunday morning. See, most Christians are so blind, they know so little Scripture today, they think he's a Christian. He's not. I don't think it's by accident that the largest church in the United States is led by a false prophet. But how do you know whether a man is really a man of God or from the devil? 
Well, John, again, will write in his first epistle, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He'll write in 2 John 1.7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So God warns that there are deceivers in the world and they will grow and expand at the end of time, and they will deny that Jesus is God in human flesh. And the word deceiver implies much more than their teaching. If you know John's three epistles, it also deals with the fact that they will lead people into false living. Why? Because what you believe always dictates how you behave. For many deceivers, he says, has gone out into the world. And if you know the context of the verse, he's talking about people who were in the church, but they will go out from the church and they will teach what is false. They will deny the faith delivered to the saints once for all. In 1 John 2.19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. How do we know that these people who were members of some evangelical church were not really of us, never really to be saved to begin with? For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. We call it perseverance. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. And a day is coming when many of God's people lack spiritual discernment. And so in February of 2015, Rob Bell, who denies the virgin birth, stood and made a definitive statement, a church that does not support same-sex marriage will continue to become more and more irrelevant. And then in 2016, he has given the pulpit of the Willow Creek Community Church One of the larger churches in America that pastors, young guys all across America are trying to mimic because they want a big crowd like Bill Hybels. I mentioned to you a month ago one of the large evangelical churches in D.C., which is also a member of the Willow Creek Association. They're promoting one of their summer small groups with these words. If you are looking to have fun, grow in your relationship with Christ, and build community together as an LGBTQ plus and same-sex attracted person, this group is for you. This group will be welcoming space across theological differences, seeking to worship together, share stories with one another, and fellowship throughout the summer. Please join us. You will be welcome and valued just as you are. This is a support group so that gay Christians can grow, not repent, but grow and find support with each other. Maybe they should offer small group support groups for fornicators. You know, yeah, we we like to practice premarital sex and we want to get together and discuss this. Or maybe we need a small group for adulterers or murderers. LGBT. Suppose the person were transgender. Suppose a transgender person wanted to join this church. Would they be welcome? Of course. They would be welcome if they repented and put their faith in Jesus. In one mark, I would know that they repented and put faith in Jesus is that they would turn 
from saying I'm a woman when God created me as a man and I'd go back to being a man. That's what they would do. Now, I don't know that they could redo the operation. I don't know enough about it. But I know, my friend, that you cannot live and harbor these feelings as good feelings and say that you've met the living God. What are they doing? They're opening the door to fully embrace within five years, you watch it, the whole LGBTQ lifestyle. Plus, I mean, I'm not, you know, what if someone practices bestiality? One of the sins mentioned in the Bible. They said, well, you know, I, I need a support group. You know, I'm not going to practice it, but I just need a support group, you know. Listen, that's evil. Evil, 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 evil. Paul said this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, not fornicators, not adulterers, not adulterers, not effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. You're not loving the homosexual to say, well, God made you this way and it's okay for you to be that way. You're doing them great harm. You're showing them the opposite of love. Because when you lift up the law of God, which is a tutor to bring people to faith in Christ, their sin is revealed that they might look in the mirror of God's word and see their dirty soul and their need for a savior. But the next verse is refreshing. And such were some of you former Southern Baptist theological Seminary professor Nate Collins taught there for a number of years. Now he's not there anymore. But he spearheaded a conference we just had 10 days ago in evangelicalism in one of the largest PCA churches. The PCA has been considered the conservative, Bible-believing Presbyterians in America. And it was called the Revoice Conference. And of course, this speaker, Nate Collins, described himself as a married, same-sex attracted gay man. And in his message to the thousands in attendance, he said, is it possible that gender and sexual minorities living lives of costly obedience are themselves a prophetic call to the church to abandon idolatrous attitudes towards the nuclear family, towards sexual pleasure? If so, then we are prophets. He's a prophet, all right. He's a false prophet. Because what he is saying, he's not, not understand, I want to be fair to this guy. See, you got two camps in this whole thing. You got your far left liberal theologians who say, we endorse this thing fully. And you got all these mainline denominations. But now you got this new camp in evangelicalism who says, well, we believe you can be same sex attracted towards a person and it's okay to have those feelings and they need to be uh, valued because of the way God made them as long as you don't act on it. And so that's what this fellow says. I'm telling you what the devil's doing. He is opening the door for evangelicals to accept what God calls evil. And so this conference, the Revoice Conference, is advertised as supporting, encouraging, and empowering gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other LGBT Christians so they can flourish while observing the historical Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. This should not have been the Revoice Conference. This should have been the Repent Conference. But you see, American evangelicalism is so stupefied with these things because they are ignorant. Why? Because expository preaching no longer exists. What I do on a Sunday morning is becoming more and more of a rarity.
And the devil is rejoicing because he wants to keep God's people in the dark. In churches today, more and more, they're trying to win the world by becoming like the world. So this large mega church in D.C., they don't want to turn off the millennial where the average millennial thinks LGBTQ lifestyle is valued and should be accepted. And by the way, if you're following people like that on Facebook, don't like that they've come out. Don't like it. Because you are endorsing evil if you are doing that. Think your way through this. Don't be blind. If you want to follow them, great. And you want to love them into the kingdom, great. But don't affirm their evil. And so we have all these churches where we're trying to be cool. I mean, even the names. I look at some of the names of churches. Gravity, that's the name of a church. Refuel, Energize, Epic, Catalyst, Encounter. Cool names to win the world. We don't win the world by becoming like the world. It's our different nature from the world that God wants to use to bring people to Christ. I'm just tired. I'm tired of these evangelical so-called born-again Christians who do not see the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel changes a person and can sanctify a person and make a person a different kind of person. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Secondly, how do you protect you and your family from these false spiritual teachers? How do you protect your family? Listen, as we approach the end of the age, the spirit of Antichrist is only going to grow, and you need to protect your family, and the way to prepare is by getting your head in this book. It takes spiritual vigilance. It takes doctrinal health. Paul says to Titus that as a pastor, he is to be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort sound in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. A person who is a pastor is to lead by example, holding fast the word of God. But you see... We live in a day where people don't want to hold fast, neither pastor nor member, to the Word of God. What they want to hold fast to is experience. And so I hear this speaker talking about having Jesus bombs and Holy Ghost bombs. Look, I'm not against emotion, but understand, please, that your emotion has no authority. Any emotion you have needs to be under the authority of God's Word. And so now we've got all these people. You know, I watched this guy on TV a couple of months ago. He said, wait a minute, God's telling me there's somebody out there in the audience and he's got, you know, a bad liver or whatever. Like he's getting a text message, an email from heaven. That is dangerous. And it is so naive. Jesus is calling. I better write this down. And so you have these women speakers who put God's word in the first person as if they have a direct line from heaven. It may make you feel good. It make you feel spiritual. But my friend, it is evil. It is wrong. It is deception. And the greatest deception by experience that is yet to come is going to come through this man, the false prophet, who will experientially make a statue speak. Get your head in the book. Two reasons. So that you may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. It's a medical term. That you might have good doctrinal health. And secondly, so that you can refute those who contradict. You know what is false so you can correct it with 
truth. And that's not just the pastor's job. That's the job, Hebrews 5.12, of every born-again, blood-bought child of God. Now, if you're here today and you've never met Jesus, I want to tell you that if you keep putting him off and delaying it, there will come a time when you'll not be able to respond. And you will believe the deceptive lies that are going to come across this world. So come to Christ. Come to him today. Today is a day to be saved. Father, thank you for your word today. Help us to hear it, to listen to it, to obey it. Help us not to be fooled by the deception of our day, by the seeds of apostasy that are being sown across the globe for the coming one world apostasy. Thank you that your word is a lamp under our feet and a light to our path. Help us as your people to soak our heads in it, to have sound, healthy doctrine, to put our experience under the authority of your word and not over it as the false prophets will come with their miracles and their signs and wonders to deceive people. Father, help someone today who is here to call upon Jesus. You said they can be saved today because Jesus paid it all. Help someone in childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And then give them the boldness to make it public and to follow him all the days of their lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.